Welcome to the Weekly Raffle. Data on the Weekly Raffle is brought to you by sharenet.co.za and with us this week to look back at the week both locally and internationally, particularly on the equity markets, is Arnu Smith from Sky Blue Fund Manager speaking to us from Somerset West. Uh, Arnu, I was watching the S&P out the corner of my eye. I think I was watching football on one screen and the S&P on the other and suddenly the S&P started going up and the Dow went mad and ended up over 600 points, all to do with the Fed maybe being lent on a little bit by Mr Trump's tweets. I don't no, but whatever. He talked about interest rates coming close to neutral, which I presume means that interest rates and inflation are more or less in sync. Is that what he meant? Yeah, look, it's, it's funny how Somerset West feels so far removed from, from the US, but yet it affects us all, I suppose. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's a change in, in, in comments. Um, I think it, it sounds very different to what we've heard before. And it was not only Powell, but it was also the vice who made the same comments, I think, a day before. Um, and they're speaking about neutral being, or interest rates being close to neutral, inflation being close to the target. And on the back of that, we have seen some of the data coming out of the years, which looks a bit weaker than it used to be, like durable goods orders. And you know, so I do think there, it does sound as though there might be a slight change in, in tactic. And it talks to maybe interest rates rising slower than what was previously anticipated. And I think that's what the market's picking up as well. And that's why you saw bond yields in the U.S. came down and we saw the prices went up. And uh, I think that's what the market's now picking up, like I said, is that we might have interest rates increasing slower. And um, this obviously has a ripple effect on the rest of the world. So where we were expecting a very aggressive Fed. I think a lot of people were pricing it for interest rate hikes again next year. Uh, that might now be different. And um, that has a multitude of effects, uh, especially on the RAND, especially on what the Saab might be doing. Because if we go back to what the Saab said last week, I mean, one of their main points for rising interest or hiking interest rates was specifically pointing out that the Fed uh, the U.S. is very aggressive in terms of interest rate, and they can't be caught behind the curve. Now, the, the irony of this is, and we'll speak about this later when we speak about the SAS scenario, but the irony of, of this is if this does happen, the SARP might actually be caught behind the curve, but not on the upside, but on the downside. Hmm. So it, it does paint a very different picture to what we had last week. But it is, it, it, you know, and, and, and I suppose that that's part of, of modern monetary policy is that they try and talk before they act. So one, one should read it in that perspective. It's not to say that there won't be four hikes, but I do think, you know, that the, the changes, the comments definitely change, and the, and the message they're trying to portray has definitely changed from the previous comments we've seen. And do you think that that promotes volatility? Because obviously the market was very, very surprised. I think it was on Wednesday night when um, Mr. Powell made mm-hmm. his, his comments. It's almost as though that the market was building a short position and they suddenly said, wait a second, we better, we better run for the hills here. Because 617 mm-hmm. points or whatever it was on the Dow is very, very unusual. It was a short squeeze to me. Yeah, look, uh, I think the volatility is, is based on what the Fed has said. So th- those comments definitely played a role. But also one needs to take into consideration what's, ha- what's happening in the rest of the world. Obviously, it's not only the U.S. But, I mean, the, so some, of, some of the other central bankers has made the same comment, same similar type of comments. Um, so, look, it, it seems as though if, if you listen to central bank talk, it seems as though they are seeing slower growth. So it's still growth, it's all positive. We're not in the recession at all, but slower growth. And they are definitely seeing lower inflation. 
and I think that that's on the back of obviously, well, it, it's apart from even looking at the world price. Now, if you're pricing the current move in the world price, we're definitely seeing it's lower, lower inflation, and it doesn't look as though OPEC can work together to actually cut that supply glut that we've got in the world market. Um, so, look, I, I think it's a change of, definitely a change of opinion, and I think it's worth noting. But obviously, the biggest part of this whole volatility, apart from central banks, is the trade war scenario. And remember, we've got Brexit, although I think Brexit is sort of a, in terms of these two years, is a, is a much smaller talking point or a much smaller factor. Yes. I think the biggest factor is, is the central banks currently and then trade war. I mean, trade war is by far I think the most important part. You are talking about number one and number two in the world economies taking on, on one another. And, I mean, you, you could say that's probably why, why the U.S. is doing what they are doing. Every time there's somebody threatening them as number one, uh, that's how you react because you don't want to be taken over by number two. You want to be the world power. You want to be in charge of the world, and you want to be the biggest economy in the world. So I think part of this trade war the rhetoric that we are seeing is, is coming from that point of view. And a lot of the reasons you see for it is probably just reasons being used to play the game, so to speak. So I was in China about three weeks ago. Um, I was in Hong Kong and then had a, a credit conference in, in Shenzhen. Yes. And um, China, I can tell you, they definitely see the threat, but they see it very differently. So they price it in as a once-off. So even if the tariff hikes go through as from 2019, that's about a 4% once-off knock on GDP. But what they are very, 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 very quick in telling you is that, remember, it's only a once-off. So it's a once-off knock on GDP, and then we go on. We still have the highest GDP in the world. We're still, in terms of population, by, by far the biggest. And if, if you look at per capita income and, and numbers like that, they're still way behind the U.S. So they've still got a huge scope for growth. Yeah, they, just just before you go on, I think that maybe I don't know if the policy changes from way up to almost Politburo level in China has engineered a slowdown in the economy. So that's I think was one of their goals to stop some yes, bubbles falling, yes. and they've they've done well. But maybe they've gone a little bit too far, combined with initial not initial reaction, initial impact of the trade wars, mm -hmm. because we saw the PMI data coming out this morning. It wasn't particularly good. I think it was the first time we didn't see any manufacturing growth for a number of years. Yes. Look, so the, the talk in, in China, and uh, that this is now from the government um, central party, is, is that they're now focused on quality of GDP as opposed to growth. So whereas in the past it was growth at any cost, it's now focused on quality of GDP. What they have done, you've touched on it now, is that they have used this slowdown and yes, I agree, they might have gone too far in terms of, of the slowdown or driving the slowdown, especially on, on, on the deleveraging. They might have gone too far, definitely. But what they have done in this time is they've pushed through three big policy reforms. So they're also using this as almost like a company. You see it in companies when you look at earnings and, you know, you, you know earnings are going to be bad and then they push everything through in, in that one go because they know it's in any case going to be bad. We might as well do it now. And I think... To a certain extent, China's done that now. So there's, there's, there's four very important policy reforms that, that's been pushed through. And, you know, if, if you look at the, the casualties up until now from the trade war, and it's very, very early days, it's almost too early to make an assumption like this. But if you look at the casualties up until now, it's actually been the U.S. It's not China. So it is, it is very interesting. 
And um, it would be interesting to be part of that supper on Saturday night where both presidents or both leaders will sit down and hopefully come to a conclusion that that works better for the world and not better for one of them. China does, from what I can gather, it does sound as though they are willing to work together with the U.S. to find a solution. The U.S. is a bit problematic currently. Uh, I don't know if they are really willing to. No, it's not the U.S. It's Trump that's problematic because he's the one that has initiated this. And he's the one that says, no, there's no chance. And then Kudlow says, yes, there is a chance. And now Mr. Trump's saying, we've got a long way to go. He's playing a stupid game. And he's also being very, very silly with Putin. He says, well... It was any excuse to to get out of the Putin meeting. And he he tweeted immediately after getting on Air Force One to go to Buenos Aires. He said, no, the meeting's off. And Russia only found out about that via Twitter. Mr. Trump is playing a very, very dangerous game indeed by playing one country off against another, the the stance towards Europe. And he has to be very careful tomorrow night, I think, with President Xi, because President Xi is reinventing that economy to be not a copycat economy, but an innovative economy. And in years to come, if Trump is still around, then they will be the biggest economy in the world because they don't need the United States as much as they used to. Yeah, look, we have touched on this, and, and China is very different to what we know in the West. China is still very much, and that will never change. The focus is not to change the system. The focus is to enhance the system. So China is still very much centrally controlled, not very much 100% centrally controlled, but the focus is to have an open economy. Now, Singapore has got a similar type of system and it works wonders for them and look if, if they can get it right in china and have a proper open economy with a centrally controlled political system i mean that, that is key for them now what, what we have seen and this is as, as a direct consequence of what the u.s is currently doing in terms of tariffs and trade wars is that china has become all of a sudden much more friendlier with with their neighbors so the dispute with japan that's gone away and they are actually now talking aggressively with neighbors because they know, look, if these tariffs keep on going up, then we've got a solution. We can just talk within Asia. We, we can talk to our neighbors and we can trade through them because the U.S. can't cut themselves off from the rest of the world completely. So they have to trade through somebody else if they cut China out of the deal. But China is now saying, well, that's easy. Then we just trade to through somebody else. We're still trading to the U.S., but it's just with a middleman now. Mm. So we're seeing a lot of that. And then, um, I mean, one one good example, and it's maybe worth having a read on, is the soya beans industry or farming industry, agricultural soya bean industry in the U.S. And they, the U.S. had to give them a lifeline because those can't can't survive now uh, because because of the tariff increase, a direct effect of of the increase in tariffs, and China is not importing from them. Yeah. So look, it goes both ways, and like I said, it would be interesting to sit at that supper. And uh, hopefully they can they can get to a solution. Well, let's hope so. And let's hope G20 isn't a damp squib as it often is. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's it. We're going to take a break in a moment and go to the local markets. But very briefly, if you would, do you think all the shorts now have been washed out and that's the end of the volatility or rather the end of the downside that we've had on S&P, Dow, NASDAQ, etc.? Because it was looking like a solar rallies market. Has it turned or was that just a once-off clearing out the shorts episode that we had this week? Yeah, so, so I'm going to give you a long, well, fairly long answer. But in the short term, I think if we have a favorable outcome on Saturday night, and that's publicized and, you know, through the media, I think we'll have a bit of a, a rally uh, early next week, maybe the whole of next week. Longer term, I think the problem is still earnings in the U.S. Earnings estimates or earnings guidance is, is now single digits for next year. Yeah. So I do think there is problems 
in, in for for US companies um, in terms of earnings outlook. And remember that market is still fairly highly priced, although it's now if you can forward P, it is now below very long term average. But that is based on a forward PE, and that forward PE has already got an earnings estimate in it. So if that earnings estimate is wrong and it's lower, then the market becomes expensive again. So I think longer term it's got issues, um, the U.S. market, but I think short term if we have a favorable outcome on Saturday night, we'll see a bit of a rally, yes. Hope so. We're going to go to a quick break now, and after that break we'll come back with Arnu Smith for the weekly wrap, the local version. Welcome back to the weekly wrap. Arnu Smith is in Somerset West at the offices of Sky Blue Fund Managers. So we had a lot of data coming out of the South African economy this week. Let's get that out of the way before we talk JSE matters. We've had business confidence, not so great. Consumer confidence, mm-hmm. horrible, plunging down to, gosh, something like 20 from 22 seven. down to 7, something like mm-hmm. that. We've had um, also private sector credit extension, also showing that people aren't exactly willing to lend and people don't really want to to borrow and you put all that together along with PPI and what do you see? You see an economy that, as we know, is under enormous pressure. Yeah, look, Anna, I think if we go one step back and I want to go back to the Reserve Bank's decision to, to hike rates and if, if you look at that and the reasoning for it, it makes sense uh, when they, they, they did it, uh, you know, when, when they did the hike. Um, but if you look at the, the data you've just been re- referring to, we are not looking at an economy that's growing. We are probably looking at a shrinking economy. Um, consumer confidence down to seven, that was somewhat expected. And that's a, that, that's a very arbitrary number because remember it's a survey that's being sent out. You have to answer some questions. Mm. And the, the 22 was on, on, on the peak of Ramaphoria and seven is maybe just back to where we should have been without Ramaphoria. Um, BPI, uh, 6.9, which is, is, is definitely up and it's, it's higher than expected. But if the oil price stays where it is and the, uh, and the rand stays where it is, it's probably the peak of PPI. We might see one high number um, to follow this one and then we're probably at the peak of PPI. Um, private sector credit extension, 5.82%. That's what, I mean, that, that, that is just, just above inflation. So there is no credit extension in the economy. Banks are not uh, extending credit aggressively. Um, and then the M3 money supply, so which is 5.9, are also close to 6%. So if you take those two as, or those four factors as a snapshot, look, if, if we see inflation coming down, and we always, uh, I, I think it's highly likely that inflation will, will come down. The break-even inflation, so that's the difference between your nominal bonds and, and your inflation in bonds, is pricing at about a 4.5%, 4.42%. And I think they might be closer to the truth than what you're getting from some of the other estimates. Um, the bond market, as we know, is probably the most cleverest market. Um, and I, I think 45 to 4.4 is probably... Uh, inflation rate that you could could be expecting, but it might even be lower. And if that happens, and we've got these data sets that we've just spoken about, the, uh, I don't see how the Reserve Bank's going to justify not not cutting rates. They might say, mm-hmm. "Well, we're going to we're going to wait for the U.S. for for the Fed to act, and then we'll act." Uh, so if there's a slowdown in the Fed, but by the time that happens, it might be too late. And we've seen this earlier this year as well. Now, it is, it is well, and I understand building credibility into your reserve bank, and it's probably partly why the S&P didn't do anything to, to, to the ratings. So it, it is helpful, definitely. But at some point, they will have to act. And, you know, it, it might be that we see a, see a cut towards 
uh, March next year, even, but hopefully earlier, <laughs> but that might be wishful thinking. But I, I, I genuinely believe we could, see a, we, we could see a cut March, June next year. And if that happens, we're going to see a very different equity market than what we are currently looking at. I mean, uh, I was just looking at some of the numbers. We speak, we'll speak about the company-specific stuff later. But if you look at some of the sectoral stuff, stuff like interest rate-sensitive sectors is definitely not expensive. The stuff like, for, for example, property, and we'll touch some, some of the offshore local-listed property later, but some of the local-listed local property uh, looks very, very attractive at a yield of 11 to 10% starting yield. I you saw, don't need a lot of distribution growth to make I, money out of that. I saw a tweet from David Shapiro, I think it was yesterday, detailing the, the performance of some of the shares year to day. Some staggering, staggering falls. And I mean, we've had some staggering falls in property this week as well. You can say, well, it's yep. a 25 basis point interest rate hike, and that's not particularly good for the property sector. You know? <clears throat> but it was something completely different that whacked it this week. It was the Viceroy report on the resilience stable, focusing on Nepi Rock Castle, and but also Fortress B coming down, resilient itself, etc. It was a bloodbath. And then I think the next day, mm-hmm. we had, or it was even the same day, into fell 39.2% yeah, yeah. in one day. What do you make of all this? It doesn't engender too much confidence in for a retail <laughs> investor having a look at the JSE when this sort of stuff happens. Exactly. I think a retail investor is probably saying, get me out of property, all of it. And I think we're seeing that on the market. So I think one should be very careful when you look at at, at the property market. Remember, we came from a market where everything was SA, SA. So uh, the properties was was based in South Africa and that was listed in South Africa. Then we had this plethora of offshore properties listed in South Africa, the likes of Nepi, Rock Castle and Intu. And um, so, so one should, if, if you look at that sector, you, you must split it. You can't, you can't compare, you, you know, you've got to compare apples with apples. And it seems as though the biggest problem currently sits in the, that offshore local listed, be it via cross holdings or via the actual company. The problem with the local SA properties, so SA based properties locally listed, is the distribution growth. And um, distribution growth hasn't been great. Uh, it's been disappointing. But one can expect it in an economy we've just spoken about. It. We've got an economy that's shrinking. Uh, so you can't really expect distribution growth to, to keep on growing at above inflationary rates. Um, but like I said, even if you only get a 4% distribution growth and you're starting off with a 10% yield, you're going to make a hell of a lot of money out of, out of that type of investment. But like you said, I don't think retail investors have got the appetite for property at all currently because all they are seeing is the bad news and they're not looking at, at the counters that are actually producing still profits and are, that are actually still producing distribution growth. So if I were any retail investor, I would look at a, at a property manager that buys selectively and not the full index because I think you might get caught in the index, yes. But if you, if you, if you invest with a manager that buys selectively, that is probably the type of guy you want. This is the guy that, that knows properties inside out and that buys the high-yielding properties locally based. Because remember, the offshore, and we haven't even touched on that, but, but the offshore portion, uh, those distributions are, will look atrocious because of the rent strength we've seen. So, yeah. um, and, 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 and then we haven't even touched about the NEPI and the Viceroy report and so forth. So, yeah, look, 
Quickly, my, 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 my view on the Viceroy report is, is very simple. You've seen what Viceroy has done before. It was mm. right with uh, one particular company by the name of Steinhoff, but a lot of other people were right, and I, I don't know if it was just timing. I'm not sure. But okay, it got Steinhoff right. It got Capitec completely wrong. Capitec soaring to, uh, to record highs since that mm-hmm. report came out, and they kept on trying to put out other reports, and, and nothing happened. There were rumours that they were going to have a go at Aspen, and Aspen fell a bit, but then Aspen fell for other reasons. And so when you see Viceroy coming up on the screen with something, you say to yourself, well, wait and see. And I said on the day that it came out, I said, this looks like the real thing to me because I'd heard other commentators also talking about this potential pack of cards in the resilient stable. But the very next day, all those losses were wiped out. I don't know when it's done today. You can tell me because you're looking at your screen. But what do you? my view on Viceroy is, you know what, let them say what they like, but do your research before you press the sell or buy button. That is exactly, the, I think, the way to take the Viceroy reports. And I think this one, this this latest one on EP is, is fairly lazy. I mean, uh, local asset managers, has all, uh, there's two prominent local asset managers that was all over the news when, when the whole resilient broke. Mm. And and they've just used basically the same info and just, <laughs> just reworked it and then put it out on, on, on NEPI. And, uh, you know, and to a certain extent, I do think, the response that came out today from from Nepi is correct. I do think there needs to be some sort of investigation, and I think that one of the proposals that was made is that the day you you publish the report, you should also publish your holdings in the company. Yeah. So if you are very net short, then you should show the market that I'm short, and therefore my report speaks to my book. That that works for me because then the retail investor or the market participant can can make a far clearer picture than this volatility that we are currently seeing. Because the problem with Viceroy is they got it right once, and now the market, you know, a guy who sits in in Somerset West, for example, who's not on the market, so he's not looking at the screen, he's not reading all the company reports, he hasn't read the previous reports on on Nepi, for example, or, or Resilient, the, the stable. He just thinks, well, you know what happened to Steinhoff? I'll just take my money out of this. And it creates a huge amount of volatility. And the only people profiting from this is Viceroy because mm-hmm. they're short sellers. So I do think there is – look, it's not illegal. I think one should say that. It's not illegal. But is it ethical? That's the question you should ask. Yes, can it be managed? Uh, it would never have happened before in the days before social media. It would have been, it yep, would have been yep. not, sort of, would have not dissolved, not diluted. It would have been filtered before it actually got to the market. Not that sort of instantaneous sort of flashing red cell signal because it came out on Twitter. So it's a very, very difficult one. But I do think mm-hmm. that brokers, or if you're trading yourself, then just be very, very careful that you don't, don't have a knee-jerk reaction when anything like that comes out yep. again. We've got yep. some results coming out this afternoon from NASPES. Our interview is not, obviously not going to take those results in, but briefly, what do you make of the price action this week? Does it tell you something about what might happen? And also, can you tell me what happened to Tencent this morning? Yeah, look, I haven't checked Tencent this morning, to be honest. Um, I think we'll probably see uh, good numbers from, from NASPES. Uh, I, I think it might actually surprise some people and even surprise me, to be honest. Yes. And NASPES is a very difficult company to call because it's so linked to to Tencent. What might be interesting from, from this release, and I don't know whether we'll get it from this one, is hopefully we'll get more information on the multi-choice unbundling, which they were speaking about, right. and how exactly did they want to do it, and 
is it going forward and you know what are you going to get um uh, from from multi choices you know, basically how much shares you're going to get for for what you have in Nuspash. and i think that's very interesting but the Nuspash itself in 10 cent you know i just read an article this morning and i can't remember from who it is i should probably declare it um so it's not my own thinking this is a, a big a u.s investor and who's he's very upbeat on on, on Nuspash. and i mean this is not a guy that must speak about Nasper. He chose to speak about Nasper. So clearly there is something in this year, I suppose. And it's still a very undervalued way to get exposure to Tencent. Tencent has got its own problems and it's debatable. I'm probably the wrong guy to ask you if you want a, a very positive answer on Tencent. But yes, Tencent is still delivering profits. So it's not as though it's falling in a heap. But it is dependent on what, what the China what what the Chinese regulator does. I mean, they haven't been able to get one new a game um, out in the market because of uh, the, the regulators just stopped the licensing. Um, but saying that, that could have changed tomorrow. You never know with exactly. Chinese regulators. That's that's very un, you know. So one shouldn't make a, a business case based on on that alone. I think. Um, Having said that, I've, I've spoken about this previously when we still had the radio program. They do have a big, big competitor now in the market, um, Nuspash, that is. Yes. So uh, there is a very, very big fund. And I can tell you that fund is willing to overpay for, for tech investments. So, you know, maybe me and you are not see, or myself, I shouldn't include you. Maybe there's something that, that I'm not seeing. And uh, I just don't like to, to pay to overpay for something. Although in Nuspers' case, you can make the case that although you're overpaying, it looks as though you're overpaying every time the earnings that come out, it it, it surprises on the upside and it justifies the, the multiple that people are paying for this year. We'll find out at three o'clock this afternoon and we'll speak exactly. again next week. Uh, I know it's going to be a big weekend. We've got Xi and Trump and we've got the G20. We've got uh, Nuspers coming out. So Monday morning is going to be an interesting one at nine o'clock. Thanks so much for your analysis. That's Arnu Smith from Sky Blue Fund Managers in Somerset West.